Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Krauss, Licensed Professional Counselor. This is part two of reflections on my 10 years of providing psychotherapy. If you haven't heard part one yet, I would recommend you go back to your podcast app and look up Podcast 20, The Intentional Clinician, Part 1, Reflections on My 10 Years of Providing Psychotherapy, and listen to that one first. All right, thanks everybody for listening. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Episode 21. And that leads me to Part 2 of today's podcast. I'm labeling this part, Enough About Me. No, or subtitle. Reflections on my experiences with different modalities of therapy and their implications. First concept, symptom reduction versus healing. What do I mean by this? There is yet another tension we live with as clinicians. Depending on the setting and context of our practice, we may be influenced by large, faceless healthcare corporations we may be told to focus on symptom reduction through empirically validated techniques and lots of paperwork that these faceless healthcare corporations deem as, quote, the best. The mainstream medical model implies a cure, and that means we must focus on symptom reduction. Yet, much of the deeper work in counseling is akin to the concept of healing, which means to, quote, make whole again and may or may not have much to do with symptom reduction at all. Healing, or making whole, involves the discovery of meaning through various forms of therapy. When healing happens, oftentimes one's symptoms are either less important or less prevalent, and they may remit if one were to take a psychological test. However, many short-term empirically validated techniques focus on symptom reduction, which may cause the symptoms to remit in the short study that might be 8 weeks long or 12 weeks long or 19 weeks long, but these techniques may not be concerned with the long-term healing. They may be just the first right step, depending on the setting and context of the treatment. Oddly, many schools of therapy that focus on meaning as the long-term healing or cure to symptoms Uh, And as it may be implied, when a person is able to find their own meaning in their lives, the symptoms remit. So by focusing on the long-term and the person, the short-term symptoms will remit on the way, instead of focusing on the short-term symptoms um, as the cure. So the managed care, which is what a lot of us work in, system that trumpets singular cures through the medical model has invaded many realms of therapy. And what I mean by singular cures is that there is some magic pill or some magic way that will, you know, basically cure the human condition or make it so you're not filing as many insurance claims. I don't know. And that is just bizarre because there's different cures or different helps depending on the person. And through this, the focus has become on the various parts or ails of the person, not on the whole person and their existential human situation. Now, because of symptom reduction focused on managed care, many excellent coping skills and techniques have been developed through various therapies, which have helped reduce suffering among people immensely in the short term. 
And if taught in the therapy office, the client may take these skills home and help them with their lives. I use a lot of these all the time. I just don't use them as some type of, quote, cure to get the person out of my office, which here's some great examples of these skills that have been developed to help people. Mindfulness-based stress reduction program, dialectical behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy techniques to, quote, untwist your thinking, grounding skills from EMDR, acceptance and commitment therapy, and many more. However, if any clinician believes that a manual of skills will heal the client, they are most likely mistaken. For you see, these skills can maybe be utilized in tandem with a deeper focus on the client's humanity and unique path. And only then, when the deeper exploration, existential work and relationship work and narrative work and all this other work that I'm going to get into has been done, may someone experience healing. A medical model which insists only on symptom reduction is not seeing the entire picture. However, if a clinician is able to balance between the opposites of deep healing and symptom reduction, they may be striking the balance for that unique client's needs. However, to play the trickster, the opposite is also true. If a clinician insists on only doing deep healing work and the client is not ready for that, remember, we have to talk about levels of care and where people are and their readiness for therapy. And they are and these this person may be suffering from any acute symptoms like they may be in a psychotic episode or they may be f- suffering from coming off of a drinking episode or whatever. The results may be that the person does not feel better at all and it may actually get worse. It is the clinician's duty to assess the client, align with the client and understand where their client is in the process of change. Um we'll get into the stages of change here in a minute because they may need coping skills to have some sense of stability before they are ready to do the deeper work and the healing work of therapy. For instance, they may need to be in a hospital. Once again, a balance is key, and this is not likely taught in a lot of graduate schools. For in my experience, they either focus heavily on one side of this debate or the other. They focus on symptom reduction or deep healing. Only through experience must a therapist find the balance. Another way of saying this is that it seems that in some of these short-term empirically validated treatments that they basically banished the thought of the psyche or the soul or the deeper person, and they're not geared that way. Yet, I find this paradox of when you utilize deeper methods that focus on deeper healing, um, you know, that you can see different things here. So the issue is how does the client or doctor implement the treatment in a soulful way if they, or in a soulless way? That's a, that's a big question. So I don't really have an answer for that, but I'm going to say the next part. This is a quote. He who has a why to live can bear almost any how. And so I think a lot of times we, some of these symptom reduction techniques are not discussing the why of what's going on. And the why for this person, why is it important that they live? And, the, and, and it can be difficult. So moving a little bit further, these are just a little cliff notes before I get into the counseling. How does it work? I'm going to talk about medications. I'm going to talk about levels of care. Then I'm going to talk about different things, different types of therapy like CBT and, uh, and EMDR and depth psychology and all that coming up in this podcast. So um, my friend joked the other day when we were talking about managed care and money's influence on psychotherapy. He said, American healthcare 
It's not what does somebody need, it's what can we get out of paying for? And uh, he reminded me that insurance was supposed to be healthcare by subscription, not a profit-driven model. Um, it started off as a you know nonprofit. In fact, Blue Cross Blue Shield began as a nonprofit. And uh, you know, I'm not going to go into a history lesson about this, but there were people involved at the beginning of when insurance was created: Courtney Baylor, Richard Clark Cabot, Elwood Wooster. And it would be a subscription that would vary from year to year, a year to year, because the insurance companies felt compelled to spend down the surplus or the profit. They would, you know, lower your subscription rate the next year. Um, and there used to not be disallowances by insurance companies. Um, but now, as we know, we are in a much different landscape. Uh, and it's a big debate. It could go on forever. But money right now and profit is driving the insurance industry. Uh, most insurance companies, the major ones, are all for-profit corporations, which means after expenses of paying for people's health care and paying for staff and paying the clinicians, there's a large profit that gets distributed to an exclusive uh, number of shareholders and or upper um, people in the company like the CEO and different people like that. So uh, is, is money the reason why there is a push for a reduced version of therapy in the managed care? It might be. Um, so it's, it's odd, though. Having worked in a merit, managed care environment, I found that uh, they would try to keep measuring the outcomes of therapy. Uh, and so they were measuring so much at one point. I remember people telling me that they were doing 50% of their time at this social service agency doing paperwork which kept reducing their amount of time to even see the clients. And so it does come down to what we value as a society. And right now, I believe that um, we're in an era where the economy is more valuable than, um, or at least in the mainstream, the economy is more valuable than what is going on in people's lives and the suffering of others. And I think that is um, happening. I, I don't know exactly why. I'm sure there's multiple factors, and I don't know how to make a definitive statement. I'm sure I'll be wrong about this, like I said earlier, but that's kind of what I, I think is, is playing out in our collective uh, myth right now in the United States. Um, so I have to also say I am very much in favor of empirically validated treatments. I think it protects people. And the issue I have with them is that I don't think that they should be exalted so highly in the literature. What I believe there should be is a balance, a guideline or a system that the therapist may use depending on the individual person of the client and their symptom situation and their personal life situation. So I think that the empirically valid treatments are like signposts and best practices that the therapist should learn but then they should have freedom and creativity within each session to go off the protocol a little bit and call attention to other therapeutic issues, but while still maintaining an empirically validated paradigm of philosophy into the next intervention, whatever that may be. Now, the therapist who is trained well will have the adept skills to jump in and out of an uh, empirically validated manualized treatment with keeping the overall philosophy of client-centered care or humanistic values into the session. 
There is also much value to having a scaffold or framework and even utilizing it, for instance. In EMDR, the manual should not be the entire therapy. There must be room for creativity and movement and cognitive interweaves on both sides of the room. And so what I mean by this is, again, striking a balance. We need the empirically validated data to find out what works in counseling, which I'm going to talk about in a few minutes, and what works in different treatments like EMDR, but we also have to have a little level of interaction and creativity. I've talked to clients who told me that they went to an EMDR therapist who didn't even hardly talk to them. They just said, okay, go. Think of your worst memory. Let's do this phase four of EMDR. Let's go for 45 minutes. Okay, great. Um, Let me know if you find any symptoms this week and we'll see you next week. And I'm exaggerating for effect, hyperbole. However, this is pretty much what they said happened on most sessions. And so not going off topic and kind of talking about some of the, or going off manual for a few minutes and talking in between uh, the rounds of processing or whatever and trying to help the person make sense of it or what they call cognitive interweaves in the advanced EMDR. And so that, I feel, was a lack of creativity on that therapist I'm projecting, I'm sure, or laziness or whatever. And so EMDR is an empirically validated treatment, but why are some EMDR therapists better than others? I think it's the creativity and the risk-taking of going a little bit outside of the exact process, but keeping the philosophy intact. So again, the ACRA model I mentioned earlier in this podcast is a highly manualized method. We have worksheets for almost every session you'll go through, but the model is not actually manualized in how you implement it. The activities are only a small framework or structure. The rest of the session is totally open and creative and how you implement these activities. It's just that you must maintain the paradigm, like motivational interviewing, and the philosophy is the most important thing, the attitude towards the client, getting to know them on a deep level, not labeling them, not blaming them, not shaming them for using drugs, not yelling at them, not lecturing them, not telling them that drugs are bad. They already know all this. Treating them like a human being. And that is, and letting them discuss and go over the pros and cons of using drugs and alcohol, letting them have a space for that without our judgment, keeping our judgment out of this, keeping our egos out of this. So maybe that explains the difference between this cognitive behavioral therapist that people flock to and the person that feels too manualized or disconnected and insists too much on the model and not the experience in the room, but what's on the paper. I'm sure this occurs in all methods of therapy and is probably why we go to certain therapists and not others and EMDR, DBT, other modes. The connection is up to the therapist, which doesn't mean you have to be incredibly creative or innovative. The difference lies in the therapist's personal awareness and attitude, their reason for being in the room. If the therapist gains a large ego from their successes and believes that they can, quote, heal people, that they are the important special factor, they may devolve into a narcissistic guru-type therapist and they deviate from all the common factors and excellent techniques that helped make help them help people in the first place. So we don't want that. So because of that, I'm going to talk about does counseling work? Remember, this is a brief review from all of the research I covered in the Intentional Clinician Episode 3, where I reviewed the work of Scott Miller, the common factors of therapy, uh, what makes therapy great, Bruce Wampold's book, The Great Psychotherapy Debate. Bruce Wampold is the one who discovered from all these meta-analysis studies, over 10,000 studies that showed that therapy had an effect size of 0.8. 
uh, that basically those participating in psychotherapy did better than 79% of clients who did not do psychotherapy. Um, that's from what, uh, and then I also reviewed the heart and soul of change second edition, what works in therapy. Um, so, uh, the data confirms this as a health ter- as a clinician, not only our words, but our very presence is a powerful force if we know how to utilize it. So using counseling skills as a healthcare practitioner, um, we must learn from Scott Miller, Bruce Wampold and Barry Duncan and others about the common factors. You as the therapist and the relationship in the room, the rapport is known as the alliance effect in research. Rapport is essential to any counseling process. Regardless of the therapist's approach, EMDR, DBT, ACRA, whatever, it has been shown that the therapist's ability to form an alliance with the patient accounts for 30 to 60% of the variance in the variability of the treatment effect. The alliance is, in short, a relationship where the patient feels valued, understood, and cared for, and not judged. The alliance effect is known also as building rapport. While psychotherapy relies on a talking cure, the effects of the alliance on the outcomes is quite remarkable and can be extrapolated uh, to the need in the healthcare field to focus on the relationship if you're a doctor and will likely influence patient compliance and possibly even further treatment outcomes. The next part of the treatment effect is the allegiance effect. Your understanding and belief in the methods and medicine you are applying is paramount. It's the allegiance effect. Another effect on the outcome of psychotherapy is known as the allegiance effect, which in short is that the therapist believes what they are in what they are doing and is confident in the techniques that they are utilizing in session. So if I'm using EMDR techniques, that I believe that it works and that I know that it works due to research and that I know what I'm doing. This effect accounts for between 20 and 30% of the variance in the variability of treatment effects in therapy. Perhaps the patient can pick up on whether or not the therapist actually believes in the treatment approach will actually work. Regardless of the reason, the effect remains. Whatever your own form of healthcare, what do you believe in? Do you know the research outcomes of therapy? Um, I I can't believe how many therapists I've trained who had no idea about any of this and did not know that the average client participating in psychotherapy does better than 79% of clients who are not, according to 10,000 meta-analysis, meta-analyzed studies. It was insane to me. It's like, do you even believe this works? You're, this is your profession. Yes, research has confirmed this. This is not like our theory. This is research. Um, so, so furthermore, basically, you have to believe in the model and technique you're utilizing. And that is the allegiance effect because the client also has to basically understand it as well. Uh, and this influences 20 to 30% of the variance of treatment outcomes. So uh, the next part is that uh, the meta-analysis has also proven that the structure, model, and technique that you are using is very important, but it only contributes to about 5 to 10% of the treatment effect. For instance, if the patient is informed about the structure uh, and the foundational paradigm or purpose of the intervention, as well as the actual methods involved in the intervention, there will be a much likely a better uh, outcome for the patient in terms of their ability to receive and comply with their treatment. Um, Essentially, 
I call this clinician as teacher. Have you ever met a patient who was confused about the protocol order or purpose of the treatment they were receiving or scheduled to receive? When situations like this occur, there is likely to be a higher dropout rate in treatment, along with the general mistrust of clinicians. How can we as clinicians prevent situations like this and possibly even bring on a new era of respect and trust in healthcare providers? In addition to developing the alliance or rapport with our patients and working on the allegiance effects, we must learn um, to tell the client about the model we're using or the medicine we're using or whatever it is. Uh, while the actual model or technique or structure utilized makes up about 10% of the treatment effect, um, they, uh, the model or technique include positive expectations and assists the client's participation in healthy and helpful actions. And they offer the client an appropriate explanation for his or her own difficulties set forth in the strategies of problem resolution. So what I'm saying by this summarizing this research is just very brief. I go into this more in another podcast, and you should really just read about it. But what I'm trying to say is that sometimes I think this lends to the power dynamic. Um, I've talked to therapists who will not tell clients what... uh, they just like talk to them. They don't tell them, hey, I'm trying to do this in therapy today. I'm trying to do this. This is the technique. They aren't educating them. And so the client has no idea what model they're under. I mean, that's just ridiculous to me. And also, you know, believing in what you're doing and helping the patient know about it, 20 to 30% of it, um, and your understanding of what you're doing. That's the allegiance effect. And the alliance effect, of course, the largest part of this is having a rapport where the person feels safe in your office. That's like 60% of the treatment effect, 30 to 60%. I, I love saying 60, but you never know. So research has proven, uh, you know, a lot of anecdotal evidence we have has been proven by research, which is just wild to me. So another question I get a lot as I'm moving into the methods of therapy is, do medications work? So let's talk about this. An odd anecdotal occurrence that is reported is that oftentimes people begin taking an antidepressant or an SSRI medication, and they start feeling better within about 24 to 48 hours, even though clinically the drug does not have the full treatment effect until about two weeks after beginning it. This is oftentimes called the placebo effect, whereas someone has hope that something will make them feel better and suddenly their system reports or the symptom reports or that is that they actually are already feeling better before the medication has even helped them. That said, medications can definitely be a helpful tool in the therapeutic process, but mostly on the symptom management side of things, um, not in the deep healing side of things and the existential side of things. Although if people are getting relief from their symptoms, they may be able to actually deal with some of the root cause of what's going on in the short term or long term. Also, not all medications are created equal. That is for sure. I've seen much differences between the SSRI medications. Another factor is that uh, often people are are coming in over-medicated for ridiculous reasons. For instance, they have trouble sleeping, and so they are given a sleep medication. But they are also taking a dose of Adderall during the day. And so... uh, you know, we, we have to keep going back layers. Are, is the Adderall having an effect on their sleep? Um, were they misdiagnosed for, with ADHD when they had anxiety or PTSD? Like, what's going on? 
Or uh, I see this all the time, antidepressant is not working. So the doctor goes, oh, I know, I'll just keep adding on more medications to help this SSRI work better. Uh, anyway, America, the United States, is, is an over-medicated place. I, I think medications have their time and place, and, and they should be utilized um, uh, when needed, especially when someone's in a rut, which I'm going to talk about. But statistics are not lying. The United States makes up about 5% of the world's population and consumes 75% of the world's prescription drugs. This is according to the 2011 UN World Drug Report. So this brings me to another observation. Why aren't doctors ruling out obvious factors before prescribing? Some doctors are. I think there are some great doctors out there. And obviously I keep them on a short list. But on my long list are doctors that, in spite of well-documented mainstream medical reports on the Mayo Clinic's website, on WebMD, in tons of medical journals, about the research, if someone's vitamin D level is below a certain range, they will experience many of the same symptoms of major depression disorder. Remember, vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin, which means it's not just washed out of the body um, with when you drink water like vitamin C. It's not just pissed out. It's in your fat. Yet how many primary care physicians or psychiatrists are testing for low vitamin D before prescribing SSRI drugs? Again, the ones that are, are on my short list. Also, a lack of magnesium in the diet has been proven to bring on similar symptoms that mimic some dysphoric uh, conditions, and I've seen studies on this, again, on PubMed and WebMD. Uh, at times, I had a client recently who told me their doctor tested their blood before giving them an SSRI and was said, oh my gosh, you have dangerously low levels of vitamin D. Why don't you start taking 10,000 IU a day? Oddly enough, after about a week or two, this client reported that a lot of their depression symptoms were gone, and now they just had anxiety. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of times in the modern medical system, you have to be your own advocate. Um, or here's another one. Uh, a, a patient will come into a doctor with high cholesterol, and most of the time, this is based on diet and lifestyle, not genetic factors. So the doctor will give them a statin drug. While this helps lower their cholesterol uh, without addressing the root issue of their diet and lifestyle, the patient may report mood-related symptoms in the coming months, and an oftentimes an SSRI or mood stabilizer drug is added uh, to their regimen. So uh, then, oddly enough, I read about this. Uh, with the emergence of statin drugs in the late 1970s and their widespread use, new question arose about the possible links between mood and anxiety disorders and statins. In 2009, 211 million prescriptions for lipid and cholesterol-lowering drugs, including statins, were dispensed in the country, according to IMS health reports. These leading statin drugs include Lipitor, Lescor, Mevacor, Altaprov, all these things, Zocor, Crestor. Although statin drugs are generally well tolerated, there are mounting reports of adverse effects related to mood and sleep and cognitive performance, widespread reports of muscle aches, nausea, diarrhea, and constipation, and occasional reports of liver damage. Individuals who take statins to lower their cholesterol sometimes display symptoms of irritability, anxiety, depression. These symptoms are reported by their family members, caregivers, and coworkers. Some statin users themselves have reported adverse effects on such websites as statineffects.com, maintained by Beatrice Golklum, 
MD, Associate Professor of Medicine, and her team at the University of California, San Diego, as well as askapatient.com. For more than a decade, Goldklum and her team have researched the effects of statin medications. Quote, unquote, some individuals taking statins report, individ- report anxiety and depression, but far more reports with irritability and changes in personality. This is from the Psychiatric Times. Anyway, these are just a few examples of the issues I have seen in my own clinical practice over and over again. I don't have the answers on all this. I'm not even a doctor, but I feel that what's going on in our society, doctors are not spending time on prevention with clients, and clients might need some type of lifestyle coaching um, similar to physical therapy. I'm not sure why insurance companies will pay for this type, seem to not pay much for this preventative medicine when medications are cheap and doctor visits are shortened. Um, I'm sure they're the greater issue here. The dominant culture and the convenience of cheap, non-nutritious processed food combined with an economy demanding more productivity, it is difficult to take a stand and live differently than those around you. However, sometimes people are in so much of a rut and a cyclical pattern and rumination, medications are necessary to stabilize these people, getting back to the greater point here, until deeper work can be done. I have seen, anecdotally, many people where SSRIs were needed to stabilize them. And as some patients report less symptoms through taking the SSRI, uh, they notice their mood is not too low or too high. They may feel less hampered by the symptoms, but they will never be able to medicate away to medicate away the larger questions. Why are we here? What is the meaning of our lives? What lies beyond death? While medications can be useful, they cannot fix the great problems of meaning in our lives. They cannot relieve someone of their calling to their life before them, and they certainly cannot give them a purpose. If anything, medications can be a useful, short-term tool to be utilized in conjunction with therapy so that a person can move out of their deep hole or symptom cluster and into a new way of being. So, we have to balance things. There's not a perfect fix, but we have to be an advocate for our patients. We need to lead them to doing education and finding doctors that are listening to them for longer than 10 minutes. Now we're going to get into the judgmental side of therapy for a few minutes before we go into the deeper techniques. Uh, We as clinicians must evaluate the appropriateness of outpatient counseling treatment. And this is a huge, I have a huge bone to pick here, although this will not be very long, but um, as a clinician, you must understand other levels of care outside of the outpatient counseling experience. So this is not an exhaustive list from a textbook, but it seems to me important to mention. There are many different levels of care in the emotional mental health system. Inpatient is usually referred to as the most restrictive environment, Because you are in a hospital or facility, Um, usually they put you here if you are at risk or people are worried about your safety or really if you're just having a difficult, difficult time and uh, we need a reset. So there's the hospital side of that. And then there's also like a treatment program center place. So with the treatment program, would be a level below hospitalization usually, Um, although sometimes they can function very similarly. 
Um, it just depends. There's so many different models to talk about. For instance, the meadows in Wickenburg, Arizona, um, can medically clear people, but for their program, but it's more therapeutic based. And so if somebody is actively psychotic, they would keep them at a hospital as far as I know, um, where there are sometimes hospitals that have programs within them. Then below that is usually partial hospitalization where you go every day for four days a week, but you live at home, uh, but you go to sort of a day program or something like that. I mean, I'm sure I'm going to miss something. This is just off my notes. I didn't look this one up. Um, then under that, we have intensive outpatient program, which is usually some sort of educational program, um, lots of intensive outpatient three days a week program for three hours, for, in, for instance, for substance use. And also uh, dialectical behavioral therapy, or DBT, would also be considered an intensive outpatient group. And there's many other forms of that. Then we would look at, um, I know there are some you know, wilderness programs and retreats, things like that. So you have to be functioning pretty well to go on one of these, but sometimes that's removing you from the environment. So that's important. There's, of course, group therapy, which is not as common anymore outside of the intensive outpatient. There used to be a lot more psychotherapy groups that were just for general psychotherapy. Not as common anymore. Um, Family therapy, couples, and individual would all be considered outpatient therapy. You drive to an office or take the bus or take the train or whatever means of transportation. Somebody drives you and you get to the therapy office and usually do an hour 55 minutes, sometimes EMDR therapists um, who don't take insurance will do an hour and a half therapy session or hour and 20 minutes. Whereas if you're utilizing insurance, usually the most you can get them to pay for is about 55 minutes. Um, Then um, that's usually considered the lowest form of any type of treatment. So it's important to know what the appropriate level of care is at the moment. And One thing I like to follow, especially when it comes to substance use, which can be very dangerous, is the American Society of Addiction Medicine's criteria, the ASAM criteria. You can look that up. Um, And also just knowing who to defer to in a crisis, such as the National uh, Suicide Prevention Lifeline or your local crisis line. If you don't know, just make sure you get somebody assessed. Don't make any assumptions. Uh, It's very important. Um, Now we're going to get into as promised, the many different schools of therapy that I've decided to comment on. Um, We already learned a little bit about the common factors when we talked about uh, does counseling work. So the common factors of allegiance, alliance, and then the technique are all there, but each approach from the therapist must be an attempt to work with the therapist's unique personality, situation, and cultural values. So uh, <clears throat> there are different models that are, um, you know, utilized. So uh, sometimes th- there's a simplification model of when you, something comes to your awareness, if you're seeking for something, all of a sudden you have an insight about your behavior or the way you've been living or the way you've been thinking. All of a sudden we decide we want to take action and then we might be able to implement the action with change. And that's related to the stages of change, which we will get into. But that's a one way of thinking about things in therapy is there's usually stages or moments where different things happen. 
So we'll first talk a little bit about cognitive therapy, which I consider sort of the stepping stone or baby step into counseling is just understanding the human brain a little bit. Um, uh, there's sort of a, a mantra, you are not your thoughts. Uh, don't believe everything you think. I talked about that. Cognitive behavioral therapy is um, a manualized version of therapy. It's an emp- empirically validated treatment. It does a good job explaining that the human mind is always babbling hundreds of thoughts in the background, and we can get stuck on many different types of cognitive distortions. This can cause us to ruminate, become anxious, depressed, uh, other things, and it can, they can go down to core beliefs, uh, which we now know are usually caused by some sort of traumatic event. That's why they're stuck. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy uh, usually focus on recognizing these patterns, the awareness and insight, so we can work on not judging ourselves and try to untwist our thinking. I consider cognitive behavioral therapy sort of mowing the weeds. Let's learn the difference between a trauma-caused thought or a core belief and what is really true and try to use thinking to get out of it. It's sort of an introduction to learning about the mind and its workings, and it demonstrates the individual will of the client to work on what their mind tends to repeat. And of course, there's tons and tons of studies talking about the efficacy of cognitive behavioral therapy. It is a very easy treatment to study. It's very straightforward. It's a lot of psychoeducation. Um, The problem I've found with cognitive behavioral therapy is that there's a deep, deep thing more than a core belief. That's usually the origin of the cognitive distortion. And so uh, it's usually, I think, rooted in some sort of traumatic experience. And so therefore, it's more of an emotional thing. And the rational thoughts don't always, uh, irrational thoughts don't always go away with rational thinking, because it's emotional. So I find cognitive behavioral therapy is a very good introduction. It's obviously an effective therapy. Uh, but I think there's a lot deeper things to do in therapy, but it can be a good starter. I just have trouble when people only do cognitive behavioral therapy over and over and over and over again. Um, core beliefs have deeper roots. There's also existential concerns, unfinished personal business, serious heartache, major defeats, perceived failures, grief and loss um, that have roots in these core beliefs. So just like weeds, if we keep mowing them down, the patterns of thinking seem to keep coming back over and over. I know that there's studies that say cognitive behavioral therapy can be long-term, but I'd like to really see uh, a short dose and see how long it lasts um, past 14 to 16 months. Um, and so it's, it's an empirically valid, validated treatment. But again, we want to think about the fact that we want to allow therapists to be creative when instituting it. I know Dr. David Burns is a very creative person who, who uses cognitive behavioral therapy a lot, and I think that's why he's so successful. Um, Irvin Yalom said in the book, The Gift of Therapy, I can't resist raising one more mischievous point. I have a strong hunch, substantiated only anecdotally, that empirically validated treatment practitioners requiring personal psychotherapeutic help do not seek brief cognitive behavioral therapy, but instead turn to highly trained, experienced, dynamic, and manual-less therapists, meaning that therapists that aren't depending on the manual. Not to say I'm against manuals, again, just I think we're hitting the surface, which is good. It's a good place, and a lot of people, you have to meet them where they are, so that this may be a good introduction uh, for them to kind of get a hold of things. 
Um, so now the, uh, here is some more empirically validated and structured treatments that I really like dialectical behavioral therapy, uh, acceptance and commitment treatment, grounding skills from EMDR. I think it really comes down to how the clinician is able to convey these skills and these manual treatments to the client. Um, there's a stereotype, and just go there, that a lot of CBT clinicians that are really big into CBT tend to be a bit more of a hierarchical, sort of inflexible uh, person. This is, of course, anecdotal, um, usually getting reports from therapist friends and my own clients who came from somebody who had one way of doing things and that was the way that they did things. And if you you didn't understand it and you kept having relapses of negative thoughts, you obviously weren't practicing enough. So for me, obviously, this is their transfer and speaking, but at the same time, I think there's also a big truth in that. We have to be careful that if our approach is not working, that we're listening to the client first and foremost. The common factors is... Um, you know, we talked about rapport being the largest part of the treatment effect. Uh, the variance was caused by rapport. So, um, you know, a lot of times I found that, uh, I, I know tr- trauma-informed, uh, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy is a new thing being instituted, which is good, because I found that if we're only going with CBT, which was invented uh, more than 70 years ago, I think it was in the 50s, you know, they didn't totally understand how trauma affected the brain or the nervous system and post-traumatic stress disorder and all of this and how those core beliefs got formed. It was a very good theory to start with. Um, It also, it focuses a lot in the logic centers, which are difficult to access when one is experiencing nervous system distress due to anxiety or PTSD or other situations. So I find that it can be a good thing. I usually give patients a worksheet on it or whatever, especially if they've never been in therapy before, but I certainly don't stay there. Um, I think what really I've found helps a lot of people besides kind of understanding that they have a a meta awareness, they have dual awareness. There's not just one way of thinking that these background thoughts are important is psychoeducation about the mind body system, starting with the brain and nervous system. I discussed earlier interpersonal neurobiology, Dr. Daniel Siegel, Peter Levine and Francine Shapiro, both write a lot of great books about understanding the mind. So I think if a client learns simple biological principles that apply to other mammals, they may understand themselves with less judgment. And they may be able to really even have more compassion on their situation, perhaps. Um, For it is important that a person understand their nervous system, especially the fight-flight-freeze response, the sympathetic sympathetic versus parasympathetic response, how the nervous system in the body is an extension of the brain, almost like a second brain. For instance, how sleep and stress affect the mind and the body and different parts of our systems. Um, When people find this stuff out, I think they inevitably start gaining insight about their symptoms and behaviors. Uh, Oftentimes, I've seen people having anxiety attacks frequently and um, and they were thinking they, you know, I'm mentally ill. Oh my gosh, what's happening to me? I, I now have an anxiety disorder. But all the while, we have to look at what's going on in the system. You know, we have to kind of investigate uh, what's going on because it's actually quite normal to start having anxiety attacks if you have been working incessantly for 50 plus hours a week 
and that includes ho- homework at home, not taking breaks, using lots of caffeine, uh, sleeping a small amount, um, having a lot of major life stressors and events and adjustments. This can be completely normalized, and if we can fix structurally what's going on there, the anxiety can might begin to recede. Um, so, you know, maybe it's not an anxiety disorder. Maybe we just jumped the gun because we saw the symptoms, but structurally what's going on and vice versa. And sometimes it is an anxiety disorder and why was it caused? So, uh, oftentimes, for instance, if you can actually get the person to do some behavioral changes as an experiment, they may be able to find out what is anxiety and what's just a lifestyle issue. Um, this is, I'm not going to go into this on this podcast, but it's important to understand at least developmental theory of children and adults and the different stages we go through. And there's so much material on developmental stages and a lot of theories, Erickson's series, Piaget's series, a lot of different things. It's important to at least have a decent background on it. And if you don't, just look it up because we have to remember that we're trying to learn about people and not tell them what is right, but we need to consult the materials. Um, I think counselors need to understand, uh, we talked a little bit about the beginning about living in between the opposites, the binary world, and utilizing metaphor in counseling and images. I think that's getting back to some primal parts about us. Humans, we're not always verbal creatures. We drew on cave walls. Um, We had hieroglyphics. I mean, modern language uh, being widespread. I mean, people, most people couldn't read um, until uh, the printing press was invented. It was mostly scholars and the elite um, that could read. So if you think about that genetically and evolutionarily, we've only been reading for four or 500 years, except for certain groups of people. Um, And language doesn't always convey everything. I think that's why we're drawn to the arts and we're drawn to music and we're drawn to pictures and we're drawn to nature. And so um, a friend of mine said something the other day. He says, you know, we pick up all these anecdotes in the, in the world. One is time is money. And uh, he said to me, you know, and that gets in your brain and then you might start behaving that way instead of, well, no, time isn't money. Time is life. This is your life. Time is what you have. Um, you don't really, even if you possess money, it doesn't really do much for you unless you're utilizing it in certain ways. Obviously, that's a whole other discussion. But this can lead to internal battles and stress. Um, and oftentimes in our culture, I think emotional reactions, uh, you know, depending on how far they go, can be correlated with the reality. Meaning like we feel something but we're not sure why. And then oftentimes we will fight our emotional reaction to something with logic. Well, you know, um, everybody does it that way, or I'm just being irrational, or I'm just being emotional. Well, yeah, but isn't that part of being a human? We're always both rational and irrational and emotional and unemotional. So, you know, one of the easiest ways to emotionally manage ourselves is alcohol, drugs, and fast food. I mean, you see that all over the place. It's pervasive. I mean, as humans, uh, you know, this is just a theory I've heard, you know, we're, we're designed for ambivalence. We're structured for inner conflict. 
um, we we have to try to make peace between our emotional side and our logical side. Um, I, uh, emotions, I think, we don't really have control over unless we really try to repress and suppress them. They flow in and flow out like the tide. But logic makes the structure so we can build a boat to go on the lake or the ocean. Uh, but if we're just in our little logic house alongside the river or alongside the lake, sometime it's going to flood. And uh, we're going to be ill-prepared for that. So, essentially, if I, if I have anxiety, I want control. I, I have fear of the future. I want to live in a house by the lake. But then it gets flooded because a house can't float. So, uh, these are just all metaphors. But depression is us swimming in the river too long with no structure. So we have to have a combination of rationality and emotions. These are just some ideas and um, some of the language. Stages of change. This is a big one. Uh, change does not happen usually with a light bulb of epiphany going off over our heads. Change happens through repetition. How did the behavior come, uh, you know, how did the behavior that people are coming in with become a habit in the first place? Well, repetition. We also know this from neuroscience, neurons that wire together, fire together. So both internal and external triggers can influence people's behavior, whether they are aware of it or not. So when we are hoping for change, we have to look at it on both uh, an individual, system, uh, individual level and also the system people are living in if we want lasting change. Or we have to influence the individual to move around the system and address the system in a different way. And if the system is their living environment, this can prove quite difficult. So here's a little bit about the trans-theoretical model, also known as stages of change. Uh, this model posits that individuals move through six stages of change. You've probably heard these. Pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, maintenance, and termination. Um, for each stage of change, and I think then you would go to relapse and then you go back to the beginning, <laughs> essentially. And this is what we're always doing. Uh, you know, for different stages of change, for each stage, they can have different intervention strategies and try to move the person uh, to the next stage. But obviously, it's got to be their choice. So in pre-contemplation, you know, usually people uh, do not intend to take any action, but they might know something is wrong deep inside or... They might be able to examine uh, the. Uh, they might just sort of underestimate the pros of changing the behavior and put too much emphasis on the cons of changing. Contemplation in this stage, people are usually intending to want to do a healthy behavior in the foreseeable future. They might recognize their behavior is problematic. They might even be able to see the pros and cons a little bit more clearly. But usually they're still ambivalent, not really sure. Preparation. Uh, in this stage, people are ready to take action within the next 30 days. And then they might take small steps and believe that their behavior can lead to a healthier life situation. Action. In this stage, people uh, usually have recently changed their behavior and intend to try to continue changing it. Um, they may have acquired uh, new healthy behaviors or modified a problem behavior. Maintenance. In this stage, people have sustained their behavior change for a while, and intend to continue going forward. Um, people usually try to prevent relapse. I think that usually at this point people usually do relapse. It's just a matter of how big the relapse is and how much that works. Uh, and then, of course, termination is when, um, you know, usually they would leave therapy. 
The only issue with this stage, of course, uh, I sort of mentioned this earlier, which is the fact that uh, social context uh, is ignored. Um, so if they're in a system and they're a child, the system needs to be changed. Or uh, socioeconomic status and lack of income and danger in your neighborhood. These are factors that are not controlled for, um, and people may need more system change sometime than they do personal change, and we often blame the individual as a culture. Um, and while we may, it may be a little bit of both, um, there's not a line between each stage, and we don't really know how long each stage can take. Um, you know, there's no, like, assumed amount of time. And uh, this model also assumes that individuals make coherent and logical plans in their decision-making process when this is definitely not always true. So something more about the stages of change. This is called the parable of the whole. I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it's not my fault. It still takes a long time getting out. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there, but I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. I walk down a different street. That's by Portia Nelson. Now, again, I believe relapse is part of change. So I think we often do walk down that same street, and depending on how far we fall down the hole. Um, so when working with people that are... <laughs> Most people are not too amenable to change, but let's just say people who are not self-selecting therapy. It's very important uh, to work on the concept of resistance, which is something therapists have utilized utilized that word a lot, and I don't really like it. Um, I think that if somebody's resisting, you've got the wrong strategy. So motivational interviewing is something to learn. There's lots of skills involved. Rolling with the resistance is one of them. Um, I think that we have to really work on motivational interviewing as counselors and clinicians because we need to not have a power dynamic. We need to level the playing field, and I think that's very important. So another part of counseling that I think is important is learning skills for health and developing new rituals. Culturally speaking, um, I read somewhere that in the old days in China, people would perform Tai Chi in large groups. It's like a group exercise in alignment and health. And I was thinking the other day, what rituals do we have in the United States? Wake up, make coffee, get the donuts, and watch the news, which is usually what I call the bad news, which is mostly everything that went wrong the day before in our neighborhood. The news usually doesn't cover the fact that somebody was nice to somebody at a grocery store or somebody helped somebody cross the street or somebody, you know, graduated a recovery program. It's usually somebody died. There was a car accident, a fire, and there's a lot of political turmoil. So I was thinking about this with the Tai Chi and where our focus is and how that affects our health. So this is from a Reuters article for a modern harried lifestyles, focusing on getting and spending 
Fitness experts say Tai Chi, the ancient Chinese slow-moving exercise, can be an ideal way to stay fit. A staple in senior citizen centers and a common dawn sighting in public parks, the practice can offer long-term benefits for all age groups. Here's a quote. In this high-tech world, it's all about speed, greed, and instant gratification. Tai Chi is the antidote to bring us back to balanced health, according to Arthur Rosenfeld, a Tai Chi master and the author of the new book, Tai Chi, The Perfect Exercise, Finding Health, Happiness, Balance, and Strength. It doesn't mean you can win the marathon or clean and jerk 750 pounds or win a cycle sprint, said the South Florida resident, 56. It's not about getting there sooner. Tai Chi is more about how the body works than how it looks, and it, it is about aging gracefully with, quote, less drama. The last time I looked, there were f- some 500 studies about the various physical benefits of Tai Chi, from improving balance and attention span to boosting the immune system to beating back the symptoms of arthritis, asthma, and insomnia, says Rosenfeld. An estimated 2.3 million U.S. adults have done Tai Chi in the past 12 months, according to a 2007 National Health Institute survey. So... Anyway, I was just thinking about that in our culture. And I know a lot of people in America do healthy things like walking and jogging while listening to podcasts or music. Uh, It's just odd to me that Tai Chi and, and different cultures and yoga are done in groups. And they don't seem to be goal oriented, whereas walking or jogging has like a starting and a finishing line. Um, and, and you have to go somewhere. Uh, now I have heard that CrossFit and gym subscriptions, obviously yoga is making a huge comeback in the United States, but those take a large commitment. Um, but as humans, we do need a type of structure and commitment to inform our improvisation. For instance, I like to hold myself to make sure I go walking three days a week, which is a structure, but I may improvise, say like weightlifting, or running or stretching or yoga or swimming because I know my body needs exercise, but I try to hold a minimum standard. There are different ways to do this, of course. So one thing I thought about is how group therapy can be, if it's done correctly with rules and safety and all that, can be very transformative. There was a quote that reminded me of this quote. If we knew each other's secrets, what comforts we should find. John Curtin, Churton Collins. Uh, there was a book by Irvin Yalom called The Schopenhauer Cure, which talks a lot about group therapy. And I do think that group therapy can be very transformative. There's just a lot of barriers now in modern life trying to get people together. Uh, but as I said, there might be uh, not just needing group therapy, but more group activities that are healthy in nature, not just you know, going to the bar. So not to say that that's unhealthy, just the drinking aspect, but, um, we, we've known that the statistics and the studies are saying that Americans feel more isolated and lonely than ever before. So perhaps group therapy is part of the answer. Narrative therapy, uh, is something I've been getting into. I talked about in the first half of the podcast, which is a form of psychotherapy that seeks to help people identify their values and skills and knowledge they have to live these values so they can effectively confront whatever problems they face. This reminds me of a quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson, which is, What is that weed? A plant whose virtues have never been discovered. So everyone has unique skills and knowledge, and they also have difficulties. But it's important to try to help identify those. So 
we can start living differently and sort of weaving our story. Um, some different quotes I found that I just, I just like quotes, so I'm going to read you some quotes uh, related to this. Uh, Judge each day, not by the harvest you reap, but by the seeds you plant. Robert Louis Stevenson. Here's another one. Perseverance is a great element of success. If you knock long enough and loud enough at the gate, you are sure to wake somebody up. Henry Wadworth Longfellow. Um, here's, here's an interesting one based on framing, which is part of narrative therapy. Our idea of happiness may itself be the obstacle keeping us from true happiness. Tick not Han. So understanding our story, understanding our skills, and learning how to implement those is, I think, very interesting. And as I talked about earlier, narrative therapy being a very important post-traumatic recovery. Creating new chapters, seeing our life as a story, and seeing it as a myth is, is an important thing. Uh, and I think we always need renewal, and that's why uh, oftentimes we come together in the therapy room. I once heard a professor say, never let your eyes grow old, and never, never to let your ears grow tired. And so that's somewhat why I do what I do. Um, let's talk a little bit about relationships. There's an African proverb. If you want to go somewhere quickly, go alone. If you want to be assured of arrival and getting there, then always go together. I think that's a metaphor for a relationship. If we're really working on it, um, we can help each other. Uh, as we know from the heart and soul of change and the common factors of therapy, the relationship is the main vehicle, the rapport and alliance through which the therapy techniques can be useful. Uh, and so as I said, obviously the therapy relationship has lots of boundaries and uh, rules, but I think it lends to the fact that uh, couples and friends and workmates and relatives and family systems, it's really important how changing a system, which is called second order change, not first order change, can allow the individual to really have first order change. There are so many powerful examples of this. There's a book called uh, Getting Your Loved One Sober, Alternatives to Begging, Nagging, and Pleading, um, and Threatening, I believe is one, <laughs> by Dr. Robert Myers and his wife. And I, I found it very interesting because they talk about the behavior changes you can do in a small way to not enable the system of drug use or alcohol or whatever somebody's suffering with and how this can actually have an effect. Um, for couples therapy, I really enjoy Gottman's work, the uh, John Gottman, and I can't remember his wife's name, both PhDs from the University of Washington. Um, they've done over 30 years of research. Very good stuff. Also emotionally focused family therapy or emotionally focused therapy, Susan Johnson. And I know family systems, there's so many approaches. And I've, I've seen a trend. I, uh, I think there's a trend going on in therapy. I don't know if this is just me, but I find that families will bring in the identified patient, usually a child acting out, and complain about that child ad nauseum. And the child, the child, the child, the focus on the child, uh, give them ADHD meds, do this, do that, without even addressing the second order change of the family. And even gone, gone so far as I've, I've even had parents who were refused to meet with me for family therapy, thinking that I needed to work with their child. And when they didn't get the results they wanted with their child, 
They were quite angry when I explained I can't get results from your child unless I work with you. So especially with children, it's so important to focus on the family therapy um, because they may be acting something out that's happening to them psychologically or physically in the family. Uh, a lot of families just rush to point out the child's behavior without understanding child development and the normalcy of this and what are what am I doing and what parameters am I setting. Um, and the parents need help. I mean, the families are difficult and the parents have, I think, more stress than ever these days. Uh, you know, many parents and systems prefer to teach through verbal lectures, which may be helpful to get some sort of point across to other adults, but to apply... Uh, an abstract concept to life, that is a tall task for a child who is probably at the concrete thinking level or below according to developmental brain, you know, brain development studies. So if a large amount of change is to occur with a child, one of the most effective interventions is family therapy, which involves all the member. And this is difficult work and it requires humility and understanding. Um, So with that, uh, I think you know, it's important to have education around systems and, and child development and brains development. Uh, there's an old proverb that says a problem clearly defined is half solved. And so when a parent and a system is coming in, or even the school is coming in and saying, oh, this child's the problem, this child's the problem, this child's the problem, we need to look at what is the greater dynamic going on. We need to really define the issue more clearly than just finger pointing. A couple of concepts I just wanted to touch on before getting into the deeper stuff. Um, witness. At times, a therapist needs to step out of the way. It's about witnessing, not intervening. A person knows their path and simply needs the validation to keep fighting. Creativity. Uh, I think stress and depression, uh, stress is the great killer of creativity, in my opinion. Um, Henry Matisse, who's a famous artist, said, creativity takes courage. I believe that's true. Uh, We also need space and time. Um, We need to find ways to lower our stress. And while anxiety and depression can hamper creativity, um, oftentimes going through feelings of anxiety and depression can inspire bursts of creativity as well. Uh, The biopsychosocial model, also biopsychosocial, spiritual, sexual model, an ecological model of what's going on in the environment is very important um, to think about when you're working with people. Um, so one of the things that just is blows my mind in our culture is that what you are putting in your body, eating and drinking, actually matters to the system of the body. And I find that that's something... Um, that is just lacking when uh, culturally people are worrying about, you know, aesthetics, house, lawn, clothes, you know, if they have a home, this is, you know, not, I'm not talking about the homeless. They may be worried about food. Um, but in our culture, it, it, people don't seem to, they're caring so much about what things look like and the ego uh, instead of what is going on internally. What am I putting in my body? What am I eating? It just baffles me. Mindfulness. Uh, mindfulness is a very is is kind of a new thing that's been coming back since mindfulness based stress reduction program, and there are countless studies showing how effective mindfulness is for not only emotional and mental wellness but heart outcomes, blood pressure, um, d- 
different different things on that. Uh, I've got things you can read about that almost anywhere. Just look up studies on mindfulness. But in mindfulness, we want to find out, you know, if you're using this in your practice, what people really need. We want to we want to f- not tell them what we think they need. We want their experience to be very important, and it's paramount. Uh, so whenever you offer a suggestion as a mindful therapist, do so with humility or humor or permission. Paying attention to the moment. Oddly, by doing just this, it frees us from the tyranny of our own thinking and judgments over time if we learn to focus. Because observing things just as they are is often can often be freeing in certain situations when you're not being confronted by trauma. Uh, when not as, you know, we're not viewing things as we, as we think they should be, or we want them to be, or we're not avoiding pain of how they are. And this can often set us, um, in a new course. Here's another quote. I am aware that my happiness depends on my mental attitude and not just external conditions. Thich Nhat Hanh. And I, I think mindfulness, there's so much to it that I'm just kind of briefly grazing the surface between stimulus and response. There's a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom, Viktor Frankl. And I think we can find that place between stimulus and response by utilizing mindfulness because then we're actually feeling it. We're not just thinking. Mindfulness allows us to get in touch with our breath and the way things are and the way we feel. There's this quote, some people feel the rain, others just get wet. Roger Miller. So I think that it explains how, you know, what are we looking at? Are we just going, oh, this is the way things are? Or some people are just feeling the rain, feeling the breath. And I think mindfulness is important because it brings us back to the present. If you have ever had a puppy, they're really concerned about the present moment. I think that can be very therapeutic for people because the puppy's just caring about what is going on now. Look at these smells. What are these people doing? What are these noises? I'm hungry. I have to go to the bathroom. I'm really happy to see you. Or humans are cons- we're, we're caught up in the past, we're caught up in the future all the time. It's part of our condition. Marshall McLuhan said, we are only able to look at the future through the rearview mirror. And so, you know, that's scary, but it's also a true thing. So when we go against our nature uh, of not being able to see the future, we cause ourselves pain or anxiety or frustration. Um, and, uh, you know, leads to a lot of issues. Of course, uh, culturally, the, this is our human condition. We're constantly being cued to think of the future. What if this? What if that? What if this? What if you don't have this product? What if you don't have life insurance? So, uh, you know, what if something goes wrong in your car? What if this? What if that? So fear is a targeted uh, emotion that's a feeling that's utilized in marketing. It's utilized in politics. And fear is a great motivator. Um, but... It's, it takes a practice of mindfulness and intentionally trying to get into the moment to get away from future thinking. A lot of times with trauma, it's hard to get out of past thinking. So, but there are times that we, you know, if we if we're not in a trauma reaction where we can just focus too much on how things the way things were, they used to be this way, it used to be that way, and in a way we're mythologizing because that's actually possibly not how they were. We have to we have to remember that. Existential psychotherapy. This is a type of therapy technique you can use. It's also, 
you know, there's books on it. Um, it reminds me of this Flaming Lips song, Do You Realize? And the lyrics go, do you realize that you have the most beautiful face? Do you realize we're floating in space? Do you realize that happiness makes you cry? Do you realize that everyone you know someday will die? And instead of saying all of your goodbyes, let them know. You realize that life goes fast. It's hard to make the good things last. You realize the sun doesn't go down. It's just an illusion caused by the world spinning round. And so existential psychotherapy is a form of psychotherapy that, like the philosophy, which undergirds it, um, at least loosely, uh, it's founded upon the belief that human existence is best understood through an in-depth examination of our own experiences. It focuses on concepts that are universally, universally applicable to human existence like death, freedom, responsibility, and the meaning of life. Rather than being a specific means of assessing and treating patients, existential psychotherapy involves a philosophical exploration of an individual's experiences while stressing the individual's freedom and responsibility to facilitate a higher degree of meaning and well-being in his or her life. There's a, there's a lot of Marcus Aurelius quotes I, I like in this section. Let each thing you would do, say or intend, be like that of a dying person. Let each thing you would do, say or intend, be like that of a dying person. And I think that reminds me of that article, Regrets of the Dying. You know, what are we focusing on? You know, what really, when it comes down to it, when we don't have many choices left, when people only have a few days left in their life, are they worried about um, money and status and fame and sex and... Um, their ego? Or, or are, they, are they focusing on relationships? Are they focusing on what matters uh, to their friends and families? Are they focusing on causes and beliefs of how to make the world a better place? Um, you can read those articles, Regrets of the Dying. There's five of them. I'm not going to get into that this episode. Let us prepare our minds as if we'd come to the very end of life. Let us postpone nothing. Let us balance life's books each day. The one who puts the finishing touches on their life each day is never short of time. And that's by Seneca. So trying to at least partially accept death, like I said, it's hard to accept things completely, but just by accepting it as a fact can give us freedom to live, not just paralysis, though this fact can lead to some type of emotional paralysis. Don't behave as if you are destined to live forever. What's fated hangs over you. As long as you live, and while you can, become good now. Marcus Aurelius. So this is from an article um, in, that was actually, what was it in? <laughs> I believe it was actually in the Business Insider. But this guy named Ryan Holiday who wrote The Daily Stoic, 366 Meditations on Wisdom, Perseverance, and the Art of Living. Uh, he talked about coming to terms with the tragic triad. Victor Frankl pictured above was a <laughs> pictured above. Now I'm reading an article. He was a Holocaust survivor who became a renowned psychiatrist and author of the massive bestseller *Man's Search for Meaning*. Um, and as you know, if you read that book, he uh, came to the brink of death and was almost killed, and then f had this vision of himself helping people in a large room, talking to people. And eventually, he invented logotherapy, and he became a very influential. Um, person in the therapy world and helping people and um, understanding the Holocaust. Um, and here's, here's more of the article. He, uh, Victor Frankl, who's a survivor, as I said, 
of the Holocaust, observed three universal facts about human existence. He said, there is no man, I'm sorry, there is no human being who may say that he has not failed, that he does not suffer, and that he will not die. It is this tragic triad that defines every one of our lives, does it not? That might seem like a reason for despair, suffering, failure, and death. In one of the greatest futuristic sci-fi novels, The City and the Stars, death is transcended, but at what cost? Almost everything that makes life worth living, that's what. There are no young children running about, no sense of adventure or danger, just indolence and safety. What Frankl found was that the tragic triad was where meaning comes from. Without death, life just is. Without failure, there is no learning. Without suffering, there is no pleasure or purpose. These, again, are the opposites. Instead of judging this reality or trying to cheat it, we should say instead, Okay, if that's how it is, I will try to make the most of my lot. If we do this, we will find, though certainly not easily, that it is from failure, struggle, and death that meaning is produced. It's death that gives life urgency. It's failure that teaches us lessons, and it's suffering that shows us who we are. That's from an article, and I really resonated with that. Another quote by Marcus Aurelius, You could leave life right now. Let that determine what you do, say, and think. And I think when I've made in my life, and and also with my clients, uh, when we've been able to make big decisions of big changes, and even just small changes about Um, do I want to go do this behavior? Do I want to hang out with this person? Thinking that you have a limited amount of time does influence that, uh, decision. Uh, you know, there's always little trade-offs in life. You know, if I work these extra hours, I have this extra money, I can buy this better car. Now, is that going to matter to me in five years, 10 years, 12 years? Um, so existential thoughts, you know, they're not a quick fix. These issues must be wrestled with and experienced. And that's what, you know, psychotherapy is for. And also, you know, journaling and different things like that and reading. They're not merely the ding of the light bulb and then all of a sudden we're fine. It's a process. It's a help, but it can't cure the human condition. Existential psychotherapy. This is another quote from E.M. Foster. Death destroys a man, but the idea of death saves him. E.M. Forster, actually. So somebody said, once, I don't know if there's really any salvation, but if we accept death, maybe we can just live. But during that time, what about all the unfair, terrible things that happened to us? So I, of course, I need to have a little bit here, even though I have a whole episode, episode 13 on EMDR and trauma and cultural trauma, and also uh, episode 14, which talks about uh, trauma and interpersonal neurobiology and a lot of other things. You can go review those for more on this. But um, EMDR and somatic experiencing therapy are two mind-body techniques that can help when people are hijacked by traumatic things that have happened to them that are outside of their control, like most things, but are majorly impacting them and causing all sorts of maladies and uh, emotional issues and physical issues. Um, So, you know... Let's just go into what my thoughts were about this. Therapy has many stages and ways of going about it. One of the ways is the awareness and insight that come many times. They come at a price. 
of realizing all of the grief that has not been dealt with from childhood, unrealized dreams, difficulties with parents or not having parents, abuse, neglect, humiliation, and more. For a while, it is necessary to process and make sense and meaning out of these difficulties. And since we know that traumatic or heightened experiences are not only stored in the memory and the mind, but also in the body, this is research-based in neuroscience, we can understand why it is so important to not just talk about them, but also to integrate the body into the work. Which is why I believe EMDR and somatic experiencing therapy are such important modalities. And I'm sure these are just the beginning of what we're working on here as psychotherapists. When we are working through past and current difficulties, we need the structure of these models to bring us through. Um, Although everyone's going to have their own touch on it, like I said before. After a while, though, we've got to process these things. But after a while, it is necessary to begin to loosen our grip grip on this past reflection, this heavy processing of the unprocessed. All of the things we were unable to process due to shock or fear or just the need to survive. Eventually, through therapy, and I mean, this is the way I know how to do it. EMDR and SC are the two things that I am huge on. Eventually, our process and therapy should lead us back to the presence, but in a new way. Present, I should have said, not presence. And even so much so that books or mentors or therapists who have helped us in great ways need to be viewed as a lily pad on our journey across a larger pond. We need to learn to keep swimming. It's almost as if we're, uh, by processing the trauma, it allows us to grow up and help us meet our own emotional needs and our and heal from, from the past. We must move forward into a new phase of taking responsibilities for our current circumstances, despite how we got there, despite what happened to us, despite what was done to us, because we are still here and we have work to do in this next phase of life. This is a quote I love. Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Soren Kierkegaard. Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Forward. So, uh, you know, I am not negating trauma. I mean, I have, what, about... I want to say total probably almost three hours in podcast 13 and 14 about trauma and EMDR and the body keeps a score book and all of that. But I'm also saying like, we have to also help the person form, you know, narrative and meaning and existential, uh, out of, out of that. Um, somebody said to me, this is an unknown quote. You don't heal, if you don't heal what hurt you, you'll bleed on people who didn't cut you. And I think I see that every day in my own life. If I don't deal with what the hurt that came from somewhere, I'm going to put that on someone else. I'm going to displace that. Interestingly enough, the other day, somebody sent me an article, uh, October 2nd from Esquire magazine, 2018. The best drug I've ever taken wasn't even a drug. It was EMDR therapy. This is Adam... Katen Holland explains that therapy helped him grieve the death of his sister. And he goes on and he rants and raves about how great EMDR therapy and is how it, how it changed his life. So that's pretty awesome. Some other therapies I wanted to just discuss before I get into depth psychology was uh, art and expressive therapies. Um, Pablo Picasso, I begin with an idea and then it becomes something else. Obviously, that's about art. I'm not an expert in un in art therapy, but from what I do know, it is helping the unconscious become conscious um, expression through images and shapes and forms. 
And I found that a lot of times when you focus on a feeling or an idea and you stay with it long enough, it has its own life to it. And that is a whole concept that can be discussed by people that have more experience than I do. But it's something that's important. Um, sand tray therapy is huge. I am not an expert on that, but I know that I love it already because it, it is similar uh, principles to what I'm talking about. Uh, so-called nature therapy. Uh, from the Washington Post, controlling for income, age, and education, we found a significant independent effect of trees on the street trees on the street on health, said Mark Bergman, a co-author of the study and also a psychologist at the University of Chicago. It seemed like the effect was strongest for the public trees. Not to say the other trees didn't have an impact, but we found stronger effects for the trees lining the streets. Indeed, given the large size of the study, the researchers were able to compare the beneficial effect of trees in a neighborhood to other well-known demographic factors that are related to improved health, such as age and wealth. Thus, they found having 10 more trees in a city block on average improves health and perception in ways comparable to an increase in annual personal income of $10,000 and moving to a neighborhood with $10,000 higher median income or being seven years younger. Berman noted that self-perception of health is admittedly subjective, but adds that it correlates pretty strongly with the objective health measures the study considered. Indeed, the finding wasn't limited to self-perceived health for cardiac cardiometabolic conditions, a category that includes not only heart disease, but stroke, diabetes, obesity, and more. The study similarly found that an increase of 11 trees per city block was comparable to an increase in annual personal income of $20,000 and moving to a neighborhood with 20,000 median income or being 1.4 years younger. This is from the Washington Post in 2015. So spending prolonged periods of time in natural areas or even just having trees on your street um, we are learning about this. The slow, steady rhythm of the seasons, the changes in foliage, flowers, and trees, and even desert cacti, the density and diversity of all of plant life, and the cycle of life and death and renewed life. Um, this is just something I wrote recently. We are joining with the continual loop and circle of life, growth, death, and more life. Infinite seeds seek an opportunity. Sometimes that opportunity is in decaying matter. Other times it is in fresh soil, which is already decomposed matter. This may ruffle some feathers, but the idea that we humans are also part of nature, we are subject to the same rules of nature, we are just a different type of organism, and our ego and the grandiosity of people throughout the ages for thousands of years, I think has sort of influenced this um, sort of subtle view that we're not part of nature, we're larger than nature, we're apart from nature. And I think part of that is maybe thousands of years ago, nature was scary and we needed to be protected from wild animals and beasts and rain and, and flooding and, and water and uh, fire. And so, you know, we've sought to bring ourselves out of this. Um, but I think it can also have an oppositional view and that can be, can be scary. If humans go far to the extreme from not realizing they're part of nature, not only does this emotionally affect them, but can, it can affect um, our attitude towards the 
living organisms around us, the nature around us, and um, also the entire planet. So I've got a lot to say on that, but um, for risk of a ecological podcast, I'm going to probably interview somebody who's an expert on this. Um, but knowing that we're part of things is important. So, you know, also we've changed the way things were. I mean, humans used to eat seasonally. They ate what was in season. And only about a couple hundred years ago, and even recently in the last 70 years when we've had better refrigeration, have we been able to eat things out of season and canning and all of that. Um, you know, now you can pretty much get any type of food from anywhere in the world at any time, but at what cost? So, I mean, I think this is a larger concept here that we have to talk about. Um, we're all guilty of this, I think, you know, growing up in modern society. And I'm not saying I'm like against eating animals or against driving cars. I'm not saying any of this. this that's extreme binary thinking. You know, if I, I do eat some animals, I think, well, if I was wandering on the African tundra, would a you know, lion hesitate to eat me? Well, no, I'm part of nature. It would not. It, if it was hungry enough, it probably would eat me. Um, but I am, I am commenting and I'm against the way that humans are factory farming animals and overeating animals. Um, it's not the same way people ate animals hundreds or thousands of years ago where they would catch it, the animal, eat it immediately before the, you know, food went rotten and then go back to eating what was more available, which was usually vegetables or fruits or whatever. Um, you know, and, and, and what effect does eating, overeating animals have? Well, there's a whole movie on that, Cowspiracy, which talks about all these different statistics and uh, how, um, what is this? Somebody said this is one of the statistics from a study, which is animal agriculture is responsible for 18% of greenhouse gas emissions, more than the combined exhaust from all transportation on the planet. I mean, that's from a study uh, that was released in Rome in 2006. Food and livestock's long shadow, environmental issues and options, food and agriculture organization of the United States of the United Nations. There are so many more things on this and methane and different things. So how are we in line with nature? This is not supposed to be an environmental lecture, but just how are we living? What choices are we making? Are we speeding things up? Are we trying to change the rhythms of nature? Um, Joseph Campbell said, the goal of life is to make your heartbeat match the beat of the universe, to match your nature with nature. And in that, I, I found that by spending time out in nature and by really just trying to listen, and what I mean by listen is just listen to the sounds. Um, listen to how your mind and your viewpoint can change when you're in nature um, for prolonged periods of time. And, and there's even people that do exercises in nature and even try to unite even further. Um, how does that, how do I feel when I come back to the city? I feel different. I feel, I feel the stress of the city when I've not been in the city for a little while. You know, I'm listening to my body more. Um, I, I can, might feel more tired since I like to consume coffee and travel, which is not really in line with the seasons. You know, I'm doing it all the time. Um, so 
you know, uh, there's lots of, of things to be learned from just observing. A lot of people use the tree metaphors for so many things, or the vine metaphors, or the, the soil. I used the weed metaphors earlier, the weeds growing. Um, so, essentially, just kind of getting more into this. Something to consider is just spend some time walking in the woods or the desert or the mountain, whatever, wherever you live, and just see how you feel after a few hours of being away and not listening to digital devices or being on digital devices. Um, and then, of course, you know, we live in a risky, mysterious place. If you Sometimes it takes a while to get this renewed perspective, but things are really strange. They don't just fit in little categories that we've been told. Um, we have to live in this mystery. We have to live the questions. We have to focus on the lens of the boundaries of certainty. Um, for as time passes, these boundaries of certainty have changed over the years. I mean, people used to think the world was flat. People used to think that the sun revolved around the earth. I mean, we keep learning new things as time goes on. So sort of expounding on that fact, um, here's a quote by Helen Keller. Security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safe, is not safe in the long run rather than outright exposure. Life is a daring adventure or nothing at all. Essentially, she's just saying you can't avoid danger. You have to get used to living in it. Um, we live in a paradoxical place. Here's a quote by this somebody that I can't pronounce her name. I slept and dreamt that life was joy. I awoke and saw that life was service. I acted and behold, service became joy. Um, happiness, I said, is not a destination. If you drive that way, then you are likely to be deflated by your expectations. Um, you know, it's about being in the moment, and nature shows us that. Uh, and, and also, you know, not just thinking of ourselves all the time. There's a quote, Seek to do good, and you will find that happiness will run after you. James Freeman Clark. So the next part of therapy is something I'm definitely not an expert in, but it's something I'm very interested in. This is the kind of the last section of this podcast today, my reflections. Um, this can be called depth psychology or transpersonal psychology of Jungian origins. And of course, there's even further Freudian origins if you go further back. So once people, you know, you've brought them through some type of modality therapy and they're starting to feel better and they're reporting uh, better meaning and deeper relationships and more satisfaction, there, uh, there is a way to go deeper and help people explore their own complexes, their shadow, their interactions with different archetypes in their life, different patterns. So I can't really summarize this as there's so many books. I mean, you know, Jung, who people usually quote, had wrote so many books, I, I've not even read a quarter of them. So I'm just going to talk about a little bit about what I know about this. So part of doing depth work is dealing with what has been blind to our conscious mind and focusing on listening to the unconscious mind. Though from the outside perspective, this work can seem abstract or even slow, and the gains from this work, I think, can completely transform us out of old patterns of thinking and behaving and propel us to fulfill our greatest potential in the, even in the banalities of our life, in our relationships, in our missions. In this work, 
in this phase of work through depth psychology, we must be even braver than before to clearly live fully in the present without the old lenses or illusions and delusions of youth. We must even work to walk and live into the unknown and possibly terrifying future. Learning to do this with equanimity and thoughtfulness and mindfulness is an art, but it is living and evolving art that can never be captured in a canvas or in a photograph. If you are living and trying to do your inner work, you will probably lose the urge to document your life on social media or even needing to have a portrait or painting of yourself. You may lose urges of needing to be seen by social groups or keeping up with the Joneses, whoever they are. While you will not lose your personality and desires for items in the world and times and places, uh, some of these may not be as exciting as they once were. This is because you are more engaged than ever with what is going on in your life, uh, what you believe your mission on earth is, and um, all of the unexpected riches that can come your way when you're in tune with what's going on in your unconscious from nature, from other people, art, love, music, serving a cause and serving the others. This way of living we could call mindful, but it is a mindfulness of living, not a withdrawal. It's not this sort of uh, detached New Age pseudo-Buddhist fantasy of, and I'm not knocking Buddhism, but just sort of some people's cheap version of Buddhism, this fantasy of withdrawing from the suffering of life and the feelings of defeat and sadness, nor is it the urging to escape the problems of the planet and its people. Um, you know, sometimes I, I hear in the sort of like white bread mainstream cultural Christianity, not the uh, deep mystical Christianity or the Christianity that understands sort of uh, the historical hermeneutics of its own writings, but this sort of cultural American uh, orthodox Christianity about securing your paradise in the future while gaining as much material wealth and political power on earth as possible and crushing your opponents and labeling them. Uh, it's, it, you know, so we see, we, you know, people labeling the Buddhists at the left and the Christians on the right. Well, they are in a way the Buddhist is a detachment and, and not the way Thich Nhat Hanh says it, but in the way some people practice it, I'm just going to go away and go to a retreat center and then never engage with the earth and its problems. And on the far end of the Christian mainstream religion here in the United States, at least, we have this escapist idea um, that shows contempt for the planet and quote unquote the creation, and oftentimes even the poor and beaten down. That the message of the Bible, that in what Christ was saying, he urged his followers to adamantly help the poor and the beaten down. But it's this, it's been twisted in modern in the modern life. And I don't know how apparent this is to people in in it. Um, but, uh, you know, I think I've read somewhere that this started around 400 when Christianity was actually co-opted, um, by, uh, the Roman empire as the official religion. And it was slightly changed and it embraced power and military might. And you can see that in the United States right now, Christianity is the religion of power and military might. It's not used to uplift the poor, the orphans and the widows, the marginalized people in their plights. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's a cultural thing. It's, I'm not saying the religion is bad. I'm, this is where people can get their feathers ruffled. I didn't say Buddhism is bad. I'm not saying Christianity is bad. I'm saying how you practice it. And the mainstream way of 
practicing it is capitalist, war hawk, authoritarian. And thus you see the church is dying on that side. And, um, you know, these withdrawal fantasies, they, they keep you from engaging. But I've met plenty of Buddhists and I've met plenty of Christians who engage with suffering in the world and who, um, who are in it and who are thoughtful and aware of what's going on and trying to do their little piece to help their, to, to really actually help others and not just, you know, make bigger buildings in Christianity or make cooler, you know, retreat centers in Buddhism. And so I'm, I'm not trying to knock those two things, but those are the, those are the two religions that I've most been introduced to. Um, and so I'm just knocking how people are, I, I'm knocking myself too, because we all have our shadow, but I'm, I'm knocking the, uh, the part that does not engage with the suffering around us, that keeps us too clean. And I believe depth psychology is the answer to this, because you don't have to have religion at all to be in it, but if you are in a religion or in a viewpoint, depth psychology really engages with your inner consciousness and what's going on when you make these choices of um, what we do in our modern world and where our focus is. And so, you know, do I buy into the mainstream culture? Do we buy into our families as, as the ultimate? Or certain segments of society have told you what your story is? Do you trust narratives crafted by those in power or even in your personal life, a dominant personality in your life or somebody from work? Have you ever noticed yourself feeling one way on the inside, but on the outside reacting in a way that was socially acceptable or programmed? Um, have you ever noticed this ambivalence between your outer and inner feelings? Have you ever gotten in touch with your inner feelings without filter and having a, fent- a felt sense in the body and knowledge that is almost pre-verbal? Many people fear hearing what they really think about things and subscribe to filters and lenses and narrow, restrictive adages, sayings, and literal versions of mythology. But what is really beneath the surface of our minds? What are we really thinking? Um, How do we start observing what we're thinking through mindfulness and through depth psychology? We have to work on the meta-awareness of understanding our ego and our projections onto others. I mean, people might call me out right now and say, you just projected on extreme versions uh, of, of uh, right-wing Christianity and, and detached New Age Buddhism. Well, I did, but those I'm, I've got to have some examples, you know, and, and uh, I'm guilty of everything I've said about other people in this podcast for all 20 episodes because I have a shadow and we all have a shadow. We're all in this together. People have a lot more in common than they have different. We just have different ways of expressing it, different cultural tendencies, different personal preferences. So Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, my friend quipped back at me the other day, the unlived life is not worth examining. So he was saying, hey, get some experience and then examine it. Um, Carl Jung said, people will do anything, no matter how absurd, <clears throat> no matter how absurd, to, in order to avoid facing their own souls one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, by, but by making the darkness conscious. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. I was thinking about this the other day about on social media, how there's so many of these like, like make your life better coaches. And they're all like, yay, look how pretty I am. And look at my new you know teeth and my blender and my car. And I think that's cool and all, you know, they're like, look at my positive attitude. And I think that's great. But 
I found that the coaches or whoever these figures are that are super authentic and are like, like, yeah, you know, I'm trying for all this, but you know what? I stubbed my toe and I broke my toe and I made a fool of myself and I, I screwed up and they're telling the true authentic story, their darkness, or, Hey, I had an addiction or, Hey, I was, I mean, this one guy talks about how he, he was abused as a child. They are connecting with people in a way that I think can transform versus people believing they have to ascribe to some type of materialistic image. Um, this is John Philip Newell, who's a famous philosopher. He said, where is the turbulence? Go there, because something new is trying to be born. Basically saying, engage with the darkness. Find, bring out your darkness. I think, I feel that, uh, you know, we all have skeletons in our closet. I know I do. Um, but when we bring those out in, in an authentic way, and maybe we need a safe space uh, to bring them out, then we can change. Um, here's a little quote. I love this book by Thomas More with two O's, M-O-O-R, Care of the Soul. It's a bestseller from the 90s. He writes, The infinite inner space of a story, whether from religion or from daily life, is its soul. If we deprive sacred stories of their mystery, we are left with a brittle shell of fact, the literalism of a single meaning. But when we allow a story its soul, we can discover our own depths through it. We can discover our own depths through it. Fundamentalism tends to idealize and romanticize a story, winnowing out the darker elements of doubt, hopelessness, and emptiness. It protects us from the hard work of finding our own participation and meaning and developing our own subtle moral values. The sacred teaching story, which has the potential of deepening the mystery of our own identity, instead is used defensively in fundamentalism to spare us the anxiety of being an individual with choice, responsibility, and a continually changing sense of self. The tragedy of fundamentalism is in any context is its capacity to freeze life into a solid cube of meaning. There are many kinds of fundamentalism, Jungian, a Jungian versus Freudian. That's why I said Freudian. I'm all about that too. Democrat, Republican, rocks versus rock versus blues music or rap versus rock nowadays. One has to do with the way we understand the personal stories we tell. In this age of psychology, for example, many of us convince ourselves that we have certain troubles in our life because of what happened to us in childhood. We take developmental psychology literally and blame our parents for everything we have become. This situation might change if we could see through those childhood stories, listen to them as myth, grasp their poetry, and hear the eternal mysteries singing through them. Now, he's a very poetic writer. Um... But I think he's hitting on something there that I'm talking about with this depth psychology stuff. And this has to do with wisdom versus knowledge. And we talked a little bit earlier about logic versus emotion um, and how we're trying to integrate things. And we're trying to accept both and. We're not trying to make this binary good-bad system. Until you are willing to be confused about what you already know, what you know will never grow bigger better or more useful. Until you are willing to be confused about what you already know, what you know will never grow bigger, better, or more useful. Milton H. Erickson. And I know we all have trouble with this, admitting we're wrong or admitting we don't know. I looked this quote up on like quote finder and it was trying to make sure this was a real quote. This is a real quote by Albert Einstein. Imagination is more important than knowledge for knowledge is limited. Whereas imagination embraces the entire world, stimulating progress and giving birth to evolution. 
So we're, we're trying to move towards wholeness, which is embracing the opposites and seeing ourselves, you know, that we're always changing, just like nature, we're changing. Just like the diversity of the forest I walked through last week, we're all changing in the forest floor to the top. Branches are falling. New things are being born out of brokenness, usually. The task of self-acceptance. It sounds like a simple thing, but often simple things are the most difficult to accomplish, which means that we did the best we could in accepting the guilt and shame and embracing the opposites. This is what we call adaptation. Carl Jung actually said, the most terrifying thing is to accept oneself completely. Carl Jung also said, there can be no transforming of darkness into light and of apathy into a movement without emotion. So in depth psychology, it's about inner thoughts and all this, and we're thinking, and we're trying to listen to what's there, and we're trying to um, hear the unconscious and not put everything into categories. But we have to be aware of the emotion that's in our body. So we have to be aware of our adaptation to outward conditions, our adaptive information processing network, how the nervous system works, how the body keeps the score, how things happen unconsciously, and we may be either either unconsciously or consciously attempting to reconcile or redeem or change or get free or get through or make sense of things that happened along the way. Then we have to adapt to inner conditions, the unconscious, dreams, trauma, numinous experiences, mystical uh, happenings, things that can't really be explained logically. And we have to really understand our inner voice. So to, to do that, I'm going to talk a little bit more about soul, uh, which is one of the things in depth psychology, um, we use that word. Um, Thomas More writes again, the alchemist taught that the wet, sludgy stuff lying at the bottom of the vessel needs to be heated in order to generate some evaporation, sublimination, and condensation. The thick stuff of life sometimes needs to be distilled before it can be explored with imagination. This kind of sublimating is not the defensive flight from instinct and body into rationality. It's a subtle raising of experience into thoughts, images, memories, and theories. Eventually, over a long period of incubation, they condense into a philosophy of life, one that is unique for each person. For a philosophy of life is not an abstract collection of thoughts for their own sake. It is the ripening of convert conversion and reading into thoughts that are wedded to everyday decisions and analysis. Such ideas become part of our identity and allow us confidence in work and in life decisions. They provide a solid base for further wonder and exploration that reaches through religion and spiritual practice into the ineffable mysteries that saturate human experience. Soul knows the relativity of its claim on truth. It is always in front of a mirror, always in speculative mode, watching itself discover its developing truth, knowing that subjectivity and imagination are always in play. Truth is not really a soul word. Soul is after insight more than truth. Truth is a stopping point asking for commitment and defense. Again, truth is a stopping point asking for commitment and defense. Insight is a fragment of awareness that invites further exploration. Intellect tends to enshrine its truth, while soul hopes that insights will keep coming until some degree of wisdom is achieved. Wisdom is the marriage of intellect's longing for truth and soul's acceptance of the labyrinthine nature of the human condition. 
if you've ever been in a labyrinth, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, we are not going to have soulful spirituality until we begin to think in the ways of the soul. We, if we bring only the intellect mode of thought to our search for a path or to our spiritual practices, then from the very beginning we will be without soul. The bias towards spirit is so strong in modern culture that it will take a profound revolution in the very way we think to give our spiritual lives the depth and subtlety that are the gifts of soul. Therefore, a soul-oriented spirituality begins in a reevaluation of the qualities of soul, subtlety, complexity, ripening, worldliness, incompleteness, ambiguity, and wonder. In therapy, I sometimes hear people say that they are overwhelmed by feelings and events too complicated to handle. I think to myself, if only this person could think through his values and arrive at theories about life in general, and his own life in particular, that sense of being overwhelmed might be tempered. Here are some examples. Should I be a vegetarian? Is there ever a just war? Will I ever be free of racial prejudice? How far should I go toward responsibility for the environment? How politically active should I be? Moral reflections like these give rise to a philosophy of life that may never have absolute clarity or simplicity, but these soul thoughts can generate a deep-rooted moral sensitivity, different from a straightforward adherence to an established set of principles, but solid and demanding nonetheless. That part is hard to grasp. But these soul thoughts, questioning, living the questions, Rilke said that, can generate a deep rooted moral sensitivity, our intuition. Are we listening? Are we listening to our neighbor? Are we listening to the plights of those people that are suffering? Are we listening to the orphan? Are we listening to the widow? Are we listening to the people in the Flint whose water is poisoned? This is different from a straight forward adherence to an established set of principles, see orthodoxy or even political statements or groupthink and tribalism. But this deep rooted moral sensitivity, while it changes, can be solid and demanding of us. Carl Jung says, Deep down below the surface of the average man's conscience, he hears a voice whispering, There is something not right. No matter how much of his rightness is supported by public opinion or moral code. So I believe, I'm an optimist, and I'm also a pessimist, but I'm an optimist in the fact that I do believe that deep down in the layers below even a person who maybe I don't agree with, there there is something saying this is not right. Whether they choose to listen to that or not, I'm not sure. Carl Jung also said, of course, I love this one, when an inner situation in our inner life is not made conscious, it appears outside as fate. Now, there's been a whole podcast on this, but let me just talk about this. Uh, essentially, oddly, in pure scientific method work, which is always usually considered divorced from any type of spirituality, we find that quantum physics as one of the most advanced theories scientists have. Quantum physics has implication in our personal lives and everyday experiences. Hard to say how, though which are quite related to many of the topics written about by Jung and other depth psychologists. Some implication of quantum physics are, quote, all phenomena are interconnected and essentially inseparable, unquote. We then are not totally separate identities that we may believe ourselves to be. Jung, Jung posited that there was an individual self that existed in each individual psyche, but was not necessarily confined to that space. 
Many scientists have already begun to explore that the idea that consciousness is not something local in the individual, but that it is something that transcends the individual. This idea is still being investigated, and it is still a theory as studies are continuing to be in- conducted. And I mean, we've even learned more since I was thinking about this, like how uh, in quarks, uh, you know, which are subatomic particles, uh, a quark can <laughs> appear in one area and then blink and appear hundreds of yards apart in another area. I mean, it's just incredible uh, what we don't know that's being discovered. But if everything is connected in some way, then perhaps a lot of these happenings that we see as just rote or just the way things are, maybe they're more interconnected than we think. The hard part is, how do we, how do we know? We don't. Um, in the middle of this, I've got to mention Eugene Genlin, um, who a couple of my colleagues have been talking about, and I've read a little bit of his stuff, the focusing techniques, experiential and observational therapy. Um, I think this goes right in line with the depth psychology stuff. Um, Eugene Genlin uh, has a PhD from University of Chicago. He, fo- he taught from 64 to 95. His philosophical work is concerned especially with the relationship between logic and experiential explication. Implicit Intricacy cannot be represented, but functions in certain ways in relation to philosophical discourse. The application of this philosophy of the implicit has been important in many fields, of course, including psychology. I talked uh, with Benjamin Reisterer in episode 12 um, about Eugene Genlin somewhat and um, some of the techniques of course, I'm reading right now Let Your Body Interpret Your Dreams, which is a really cool book on experiential psychology. He wrote where he was just working with a group of people and teaching them these techniques, and they were having quite amazing results. Genlin has been honored numerous times for his development of experiential psychotherapy. Um, for instance, he was awarded Distinguished Professor Professional Psychologist of the Year in 1970. In the, uh, anyway. He was awarded the Viktor Frankl Prize by the city of Vienna and the Viktor Frankl Family Foundation and received Lifetime Achievement Awards from the World Association for Person-Centered and Experiential Psychotherapies and the U.S. Association for Body Psychotherapy. So these are some things I'm also getting into along with um, depth psychology and just really f- trying to incorporate the mind-body in a, in a, in a way that's unique and uh, bringing about knowledge that can help us in our personal lives. Getting back to Jung, I do think Genlin is a is a compliment to Jung in a way. Uh, Jung was maybe in the broader, larger sense, uh, but he also wrote about the inner life, and Genlin was more about exper- uh, experiential things. And Jung predicted uh, that old patterns of modern culture were fragmenting and grand narratives were dimming. In modern life, people were living longer, having more autonomy, and having more opportunities than they did before. There are more and more people than ever on this planet, and complicated crises emerging everywhere, if you haven't noticed. (laughs) The old social structures and fundamental institutes were breaking down and family life and community patterns fragmenting, and modern man left with his or her spiritual cravings, often unmet by traditional spiritual forms, orthodoxy, community life, or notions of family commitment. Jung intuited that modern man was in jeopardy. Depth work, depth psychology, and I believe also focusing, um, Values, uh, depth work values the ruptures, the breaks, 
in the rhythm of daily life. The depressive pit, the sleepless panic, and the shadow-laden nightmare could be sealed off by medication. Many in our society are grateful to go back to the familiar easy fixes, or again, the medication talk earlier I discussed. Uh, but a few may become curious about the autonomous and creative source of the psyche and seek to know the self in depth, or the soul, which I was talking about with Thomas More. The inner ruptures of our life may be seen in the outer life as well. The meaning of family life and kinship will uh, continue to change, and we've already heard this, the chosen family, or people being adopted, quote-unquote, by other people, um, and challenging long-held traditions and narrow conceptions from a tribal perspective, as I I've been thinking about. It may be difficult for the individual to continue projecting their unconsciousness onto others. I wish that was true. I can, you can just turn on the television and watch the news in today's politics to see projecting full in full tilt. Um, now I do think I did write this, the information age and recordings of things by DNA testings. We're always having, there's always a positive and negative effect, but DNA tests, they got the golden state killer. People are finding out that they have long-lost siblings because society suppressed people's authenticity and people were told to adopt these people out. And people are saying, wow, I have a sibling now I never knew about. Cameras and audio recordings are, are uh, changing the way people behave. I mean, I have a camera on my house right now that I had to put because of a certain situation. Uh, it's, of course, it's on the outside, you know, with the front door. Um, people are, people in a way, uh, because of this, you know, these evidences by cameras and DNA tests are being able to, f are being forced to face their shadows or dark sides, like the Me Too movement. The old silence is being broken in society. And I think that's what we're in the middle of. We're in a big disruption. Things, everyone's saying, things are getting worse. Things are getting worse. And I'm saying, well, no, things are getting worse, but they're also getting better. They're getting better. Uh, but, uh, you know, it depends where you're tuning in. That's the trouble with postmodern life. Um, and, uh, and again, well, that's a very relative statement. But in the middle of all this chaos, and we're in a very big political turmoil, I think um, we're in a fight between logic and rationale. We're in a fight for power here in the United States. And the old power structures are being challenged and the old ways of doing things are being challenged. And uh, there's a huge fight between hanging on to that power from one end and trying to figure out ways of changing the power from the other end. We have the task of learning to hold on to the opposites of this experience. And by doing this work, this could not just benefit ourselves, but the world at large. So what then? Here I go, talking a little bit more as I kind of close out this one. In human evolution, we are born with the idea to distinguish ourselves um, from other animals and follow the ego. Yet many tribes around the world, there was not as much of the individual as it was the collective, where roles were loosely defined, but in a sense worked out in small groups. In the current Western consciousness, people, or their egos, are more convinced than ever of their individual importance. There is a lack of inner reflection in the dominant culture, and thus an increase of projection onto others a deep mistrust and a not-so-hidden hatred of others, and, of course, mass consumerism and confusion about health, which I see every day. In fact, this is to be found in almost all segments of society, whether religious, political, or completely secular, and you can see this all the time. For instance, I mentioned the Christian church is dying, um, and at the same time, oddly, the megachurches are getting larger. So what does that mean? I have no idea. Um, politically, things are getting weird and crazy. Um, maybe even more 
and maybe it's just my projection, I have, no, I have no idea. Some of this activity appears to be amplified by the dominance of social media and the opinions of, of unchecked so-called news sources. Um, we've heard that before, but who's, who's, which one's unchecked? You know, what is the truth? There's a battle for the people wanting to have their name on that. We continue to project our own untamed animal instincts onto others as a rationalization for eliminating them and thus giving us access to what we believe to be limited resources. Um, so, you know, I've, I've seen this. I mean, like I said before, um, there are elements of, of in every sector, but I mean, even I was talking about I'm not going to go into religion again. Okay, the whole the whole of human conflict traces back to the boundaries we erect between ourselves and others. In fact, we may need to learn that cooperation, not conflict, may allow our human species to overcome our current environmental crisis and survive on this planet. I mean, plastic. There's one of them right there. Just, I use plastic. Whoops, you know, there we go. That really takes a long time to break down. Um... There are truths that may arise if one pays attention to history and not just the history of the winners and ponders things long enough. If one pays attention to history and ponders things long enough, there is a cycle, a circle. Um, you know, let's go into that. Such as the truth that if people actually meet face to face and are able to have an open dialogue, an open dialogue, what I mean is, it doesn't matter what language they have, as long as they have an interpreter, an open dialogue of honest, open-minded, and willing conversation that's authentic, and they're ready for this. If both parties approach the other, you may see that you have more in common than you don't. That's my theory. If you consider long enough and are able to break outside of your comfort zone for a prolonged period of time, whatever that's your cultural background, your country, your language, your religion, your spiritual take, you may find that all people are from the same source, and so this hostile tribalism that seems to keep erupting in our culture is not the answer to the problems of human communities, nor of the planet. What of war, you say? Wars have been going on forever. But we are one human family, at least, but we, our ego won't let us realize that. You know, it's it's interesting. Um, th th when I said don't just pay attention to the the history of the winners, there's a book called The People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn, and it is a difficult read. But it's it's not just the history of the winners. It's it's actually journals from people, from explorers, quote unquote, that came to the United States and you know exploited native cultures, um, both south of the United States and in the South America and Mexico and elsewhere, and literally. I remember reading this, and I will save you the gory details, but a sense, the people, they called the tribal people savages, and they literally raped and killed them with some sort of rational, religious sometimes justifications. So we have to be careful about how special we think we are. And is God really on our side, or are we listening to God, or whatever you want to call it? Uh, there's a former prime minister of Israel, Shimon Perez that was quoted saying, the only way to be secure is to have your neighbor fulfilled. The only way to be secure is to have your neighbor fulfilled. And we know what's been going on in Israel and Palestine for hundreds of years, thousands of years. Robert Johnson, an associate of Carl Jung, was asked, do you think that humans will survive as a species? His answer was, well, 
if enough people do their inner work. I hear my dog whining, but as I, <laughs> as I close down, this is the last of it. And, and again, this is where I'm at right now. I, 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 I love psychology. I'll use, I don't just use depth psychology or my personal opinions on people at all. I mean, whatever your opinion is, whatever religion, whatever culture you come from, I believe I can help you. I try to get out of the way. I'm certain I've made mistakes with clients before in the past. But when you come in, you're not going to get a lecture from me. I'm going to give you some information, and I'll say, what do you, what do you believe about that? I'm trying to help you. Um, you know, like all therapists, I've made mistakes in 10 years, but I know that overall, if you pulled my patients, they would be telling you that I was doing the best, I'm doing the best I can. And most of them got great results, uh, as, as a uh, result of that. And I know that because they've told me, um, and I've had them fill out, you know, Scott Miller's stuff, the outcome rating scale, things like that. So this is a couple quotes I'm going to leave you with. Um, and then my last statement of podcast 20. The soul moves in circles, said Plutonius. Hence, our lives are not moving straight ahead. Instead, hovering, wavering, returning, renewing, repeating. The genes work in lags and spurts. The sense of being in the zone, in touch, opened out, blasted, seeing and knowing, coming and going, utterly, unpredictably, yet with stable patterns. I am different from everyone else. I am different from myself 10 years ago, and the same as myself 10 years ago. My life is a stable chaos, chaotic and repetitive, both, and I can never predict what tiny, trivial bit of input will result in a huge and significant output. I must always remain acutely sensitive to initial conditions, such as what or who came into the world with me and enters the world with me each day. On that, I remain dependent. James Hillman, from his book, The Soul's Code. I love that quote. I totally identify with that. I, I talked about being a musician, and every, it was just so funny. We always joked about, you can't predict what song people are going to like. You can't even predict what song you could finish uh, writing. You can't even predict what song you're going to like yourself. It's just if we let go of control. Carl Jung said, in all chaos, there is a cosmos. In all disorder, a secret order. Ultimately, as I close this podcast, it could have been 20 hours long. I was trying to touch on a lot of areas, including my own story during part one and part two, my comments on different types of therapy. I left out plenty of segments of therapy. So send me comments. I will you know, try to get more on it, but, um, you know, go to the conference, go to the evolution of psychotherapy conference, the brief psychotherapy conference, go to the American counseling association, go to the American mental health counselors association conference. Um, there's so many conferences. I just left out of that. Learn something, uh, go out there, read your own books. Don't just rely on podcasts. Um, experience things, experiential psychology, get into, uh, dialogue with people, learn from others. I have learned so much from my mentors, Rafe Adams and Mike Speakman, Brian Sabatino. I'm going to leave somebody out. I know I'm going to get an email about this. I've, I've learned from everybody I've interviewed, um, over these 20 episodes. Um, and some of them of course are solo. I've learned from my mistakes. I've learned from being in therapy. I'm in therapy myself. I find it quite valuable. I find that I'm a better human. I treat people better. Um, and I would encourage you, if you've not been in therapy, to find a good therapist. And if you don't like your therapist, find another therapist. I don't like the place that I brought my car. I found a new place to bring my car. 
um, I was trying to cut this down to make it into just an episode of my reflections of, of being a psychotherapist. Um, I thought about it recently that psychotherapy is a place of healing and a place of learning, but the goal is eventually for people to learn practices, rituals, ways of being their own soul's language so that they can practice these things and bring them out into the world and into their relationships. And I was thinking the other day about the Mindful Schools Project. It's an example of psychology being brought into the world of education. And the results uh, are astounding. For lack of time, I will not list them. Uh, Google Mindful Schools. What if mindfulness and learning about being part of a human was part of the standard curriculum of education in the United States? What if that was the case? That would be amazing. And we cared about people being human and not just productivity. They weren't human doings. They were human beings. I wonder what our world would be like. It starts with us. It starts with our small decisions as right now I'm an adult so and an uncle. It starts with my uncle decisions. It starts with the way I treat my friends. It starts with, um, you know, I'm a, you know, we're in America where I spend my money, who I'm letting, uh, you know, my micro choices. Uh, but it also has to do with larger choices. Who am I voting for? Who am I listening to? Um, what sources of information am I um, folding through? And, and also, how, how am I making an impact on my local community? Am I involved in some organization, some cause, something small that can have a larger impact together? So these are the big questions, and I'm living the questions, and I'm trying to live the questions, and I hope that you do too. Um, the answers, there's always multiple answers um, for almost everything. So I appreciate you listening. Again, you know, my opinions do not <laughs> negate going to get your own counseling. Um, these thoughts are not definitive by any means. I am just putting out there what I thought this month, October 2018. Thank you for listening. If you need counseling, find a local counselor. Uh, if you need EMDR, find a local EMDR practitioner. If you're in Grand Rapids, Michigan... I am also the manager and co-founder of Health for Life Grand Rapids. You can find us on the web at www.healthforlifegr.com. If you want me to train your clinicians in your state in the ACRA model, I'd be more than happy to. If you want me to get my six-hour training the intentional clinician, I'd be more than happy to. It has a lot of cool experiential things uh, in it. Um, if I can serve you in some way, that'd be great. I'm also a counseling supervisor. I love teaching. Um, but I know I'm not right about everything. I'm just in the process, just like you. And I hope that all the clinicians out there listening, remember, um, that the moment, you know, you think, you know, something you don't about your clients, listen to our clients. Our clients are our best teacher. And, um, I guess those are my thoughts and take care and be well. This has been Paul Krauss and the Intentional Clinician Podcast. In the epicenter, I won't go there. Once upon the Great Lake Shore, you're up and I'm down.
And now for the disclaimer. 
The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss, and while these are based upon literature he has read and his experience in the field, they should not be viewed as the definitive opinion on the subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in crisis, please call 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, which is 1-800-273-8255. If you are in need of counseling, don't hesitate to make a counselor with a local licensed professional counselor in your area. You can also make an appointment with Paul or or one of his associates by emailing or calling. The information for that is on www.healthforlifegr.com or paulkrauscounseling.com. Thanks so much for listening. Take care, everybody.